You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. The middle of September this year saw the end of the Cassini mission with its grand finale plummeting into the gas giant uh, past its magnificent ring systems, of course. And later on in the programme, I'll be talking to a researcher here in Cardiff who's worked with Cassini. But first, the end of September also saw the European Space Agency, or ESA, celebrating Herschel Week, a celebration of the Herschel Space Observatory and the science that's been done since the end of the mission. Herschel was a project dear to the hearts of many people here in Cardiff who worked closely uh, on the mission. It launched in 2009 and ran until 2013. But even though the mission has ended, the science must go on, and one of the people doing lots of that science is Professor Steve Eels here in Cardiff. Uh, Steve works on galaxies and how they've evolved over cosmic time, and has some new results uh, just coming out now. So galaxies, these collections of stars, we see hundreds of millions, billions, trillions of stars in one galaxy of all sorts of different uh, shapes and sizes. And in fact, although we might see them as a collection of stars, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I began by asking Steve, what we meant by a galaxy. People have known for a long time there are different types of galaxies. So um, Hubble, Edwin Hubble, was the first person to really explore the universe of galaxies and, and he kind of divided galaxies into three main types. So the spiral galaxies, uh, like our own, these are kind of big disks of stars with spiral arms in the, in the disks. And then there's elliptical galaxies, little fuzz, there's actually large fuzzy objects don't have any obvious structure and in those the the stars were whizzing around wildly and um, because Hubble couldn't put all galaxies into these two classes then there was a third class that he called irregular galaxies and these are galaxies on photographic plates just look rather kind of messy there's no obvious structure. So we had these classifications they they hung around uh, for a long time they're still used today and early on uh, a few decades ago it was thought that this was some sort of uh, evolution of galaxies as they changed over cosmic history over billions of years and we now know it's not quite that simple um well we're still trying to puzzle things out okay so um galaxies do change over cosmic history in 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 many ways so we know that the stars in galaxies uh will gradually um evolve and then die so the stellar populations of galaxies will change and that makes the galaxy change as well Um, and then the other thing that happens that we know is important is galaxies can merge together and there's a popular theory that two spiral galaxies can merge to form an elliptical galaxy. Um, but the truth is, we're still really trying to puzzle a lot of this out. We don't actually know, we don't really have a good understanding of, of galaxy evolution. There's lots of ideas around, but we still don't really understand. Now, when you look at galaxies with uh, the Herschel Space Observatory and look at the data uh, you've collected, you've got many, many galaxies, uh, hundreds of thousands uh, of galaxies. And you don't normally see their, their shape. So we talk about spiral and elliptical galaxies. You don't normally see, unless they're very close to us, their shape with Herschel. You, you see other properties about them. You see their colour and so on. What, what, what do we learn from these observations? Um, OK, well, sort of, uh, I guess the crucial, one crucial thing to know about Herschel, or the Herschel Space Observatory, is it's a, it's a telescope that kind of looks in the far infrared. Um, whereas traditional astronomers use optical telescopes. And a second thing to realise is that every view of the universe is always very biased. So optical surveys will kind of give you one picture of the universe that you might be tempted to think is the, the total truth. Uh, but then with Herschel, uh, we have a very different view of the universe and we saw kind of um, the population of galaxies look quite different from the population 
um, you see an optical wavelengths. So going going back to the categories of galaxies again, and so Hubble kind of divided galaxies into three types, but really for the last 20 years, astronomers have generally thought there were two main types of galaxies. So this is not really to do with their structures, it's to do with whether they're forming stars. So the kind of popular idea has been that the galaxies are either forming stars and are therefore called star-forming galaxies, or they've no longer got any stars forming in them, and they're basically just big balls of old stars. And these are called a variety of things. Sometimes they're called red and dead galaxies. Sometimes they're called passive galaxies. Sometimes they're called quiescent galaxies. So there's been this kind of um, idea around with these two types. And the um, reason astronomers have thought there were two types goes back to what you see in optical surveys. So optical astronomers go and do these big surveys of galaxies, and then they plot galaxies on things called colour diagrams, where you plot the colour of a galaxy against its, um, its kind of mass, essentially. And on these diagrams, galaxies fall neatly into two categories. So there are the, there's a thing called the, the blue cloud of galaxies, which is basically the star-forming galaxies. And then there's a thing called the red sequence, which is basically where the, the red and dead, the passive galaxies, uh, fall. And we should say that they're called blue and red because in the optical, the blue galaxies uh, are forming stars. They have lots of young, high-mass, very bright blue stars in them. And the red and dead galaxies have lots of old, lower-mass red stars in them. So that, that, yeah, absolutely. That's completely right. So colour color tells you kind of roughly where the, where, the, where the galaxy is forming stars. So anyway, we have a blue cloud and a red sequence. And then between the blue cloud and red sequence, there weren't many galaxies. And people tend to call that region the, the Green Valley. So that, that was the kind of observations from optical surveys. And then they gave rise to this general idea, this general model of how galaxies form, that you have a star-forming thing called a star-forming main sequence, and a galaxy stays on this star-forming main sequence for quite a long time. And then suddenly, suddenly something catastrophic happens. All the gas in the galaxy gets blown out, perhaps by a quasar or something. And then there's no more stars forming because the, the gas is all gone. And so the, the galaxy rapidly becomes a, a kind of dead galaxy. So in terms of the colour luminosity thing, so you have a, have a galaxy that starts out in the star-forming blue cloud, and then this thing happens, wiping out all the gas. We're not really sure what process is doing that. And then the, the, the galaxy rapidly moves through the so-called Green Valley and then ends up in, on the red sequence. And we, should, we, we don't actually see galaxies changing uh, because this takes hundreds of, well, hundreds of millions, billions of years to happen. This is just, we, we, we assume it happens quickly because we don't see many in between. Exactly. exactly. So, so when I say quickly, I'm talking about quickly in, in the cosmic um, terms. So, so a galaxy uh, might move across the Green Valley in, um, actually, I can't, I'm not quite sure what the, what the number would be, but perhaps some um, 10 million, 100 million years. And that seems like a long time, but that is a, that is a kind of small compared to the total age of the universe. It's blink, blink of an eye cosmo cosmologically. Blink of an eye cosmologically, that's right. So anyway, that, that was the kind of picture that we had from optical surveys. And then we, we did our big survey with Herschel, so this big fire and fred survey, uh, which started actually in 2010, so it's been going on an awful long time. Um, and for the first six years of the survey, we didn't really do a very obvious thing, um, which was to plot where our Herschel galaxies, so the galaxies we detected with Herschel, lie on one of these colour luminosity diagrams. Um, and then last year, I sort of finally got around to doing this, and it was quite surprising because 
rather than a red sequence, a green valley, and a blue cloud, all the Herschel galaxies lie in the green valley region. And you don't see any in the, the blue cloud or the red sequence region. So essentially, Herschel gives you a green mountain. <laughs> so so the, the, um, these two ways of looking at the universe, the, op- the traditional optical method and the fine red method with Herschel, actually give you very different populations of galaxies, um, which shows uh, that our views of the universe are always biased by the way we look at the universe. So this idea that uh, in optical surveys, the, these, these galaxies and this green valley, that there weren't many there because they were moving quickly, it's just they weren't visible to the optical surveys. They were only visible in the infrared or only easily visible in the infrared. Uh, yeah, they're, they're pick, they get picked up in the infrared much better than in the optical because they're actually galaxies that have still got lots of uh, interstellar gas and dust. Um, and with Herschel, we, we, we detect the dust. So we detect lots of these green valley galaxies. What the Herschel observations are showing is these galaxies are, are much more free, much more common than optical astronomers thought. So the old idea that a galaxy has to be on the uh, star-forming main sequence and then rapidly moves across this green valley region, or rapidly in cosmic terms, across the green valley region to the red sequence, isn't really correct. When we, we when we get when we fold both the Herschel data and the optical data together, what you see is a kind of a gentler picture of how galaxies evolve. So rather than something sudden happening, getting rid of all the gas, we, we now, um, or some of us, now think that galaxy evolution is a much gentler affair. That rather than something really catastrophic happening, galaxies just gradually change over billions of years rather than uh, tens of millions of years as they gradually move from the, the, the kind of blue cloud area over to the red sequence area. Um, the galaxies we're finding are lots of gas and dust. They're still forming stars, um, but optical astronomers just wouldn't have realised that because of the technique because of the techniques they use. So this is the way uh, this is the way a lot of science, a lot of astronomy works. Is that people have a take some observations, uh, make a theory, and and come up with some explanation for it, and then someone else, in this case yourself and the, the other team behind the the Atlas survey with Herschel, come along and realise that. They've got some evidence that disproves that theory, which is which is fine, and come up with a new theory, which you're about to publish. Uh, uh, yes, we've had the big the big paper that we've dis- described in these results and has been accepted. I think the other thing that I've realised actually from doing this is that um, you know what you're saying is of course the way science should work, but but something that that I've realised is the good results are, are are in a way very obvious things, but they're the kind of things you forget to do for a long time. So people try and do these very sophisticated things, but actually the the key results are things that are just sitting there waiting in front of your face almost, and you just don't see them. We didn't see this result for about six years. A bit like trying to search for a pair of a set of keys at home, and you realize actually they're in the door all along, kind of. Uh, thing. Exactly, yeah. so, exactly. Yeah. that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating result. We look forward to seeing. Uh, um, it's going to be published in in. Coming coming days, I guess, or in, in uh, it will be public. It will be on the internet in a few days' time. On. I will be posting it on the internet for anyone that's interested in the next few days. Okay, I'll try and put a link on the website to, to where it is for anyone who does want to uh, to go and read it, and uh, we'll see what everyone else. It's, says a, it's a ripping good read, I have yeah. to say. <laughs> um, perhaps not. Perhaps for professional astronomers, maybe more than um, everyone, but yeah. uh, it is quite a good, good paper. Excellent. Uh, well, Basically, well, says everyone, everyone else is wrong. Oh, which, which is always a good thing. Always a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Excellent. Uh, well, that's uh, certainly a, a new result. And there's all these things coming out of Herschel all the time. So the, although the mission ended in 2013, there's lots more to come still. This is huge database. I mean, we're still, um, I guess we're just about getting to the stage where we're looking at other telescopes. So we're still using the Herschel database, but often we're following up the Herschel sources uh, with other observations. So one of the things we've been doing is there's a telescope in Chile called the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which is a, um, a thing called an interferometer, which allows you to study sources in great, with great spatial detail. Now, the problem with Herschel is it just detects blobs essentially you see a source in the sky but you can't see any detail in its structure but alma atacama large millimeter array allows you to actually kind of map the structure so we have a lot of programs with alma uh, mapping the herschel sources so i think the herschel database the herschel source catalogs will be used for decades to come really um it's an immense treasure trove of of data and there's no comparable telescope anywhere close to being launched its legacy will be immense. Go-to place for a lot of astronomers for quite a long time to come. Steve Eels, uh, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. So still lots more science to do uh, with the Herschel Space Observatory. A magnificent spacecraft when it was operating. And speaking of magnificent spacecraft, we jump, of course, to the Cassini space probe. The space probe orbiting Saturn uh, for 13 years. Uh, it came to the end of its mission at the end of September, and I'm joined now by uh, Dr. Emily dryback Monda, who's a researcher here in Cardiff, who uses Cassini data. So, uh, end of an era, I suppose. Yes, it definitely is the end of an era. So, even though Cassini was in orbit around Saturn for 13 years, um, the mission actually started 20 years ago, right. um, and, it, and it took um, about seven years for Cassini to end up um, at Saturn, so it actually took quite a long time. So it's an old spacecraft by the tent. I mean, 20 years is a long time for a spacecraft. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. Um, and it was running out of fuel. So the spacecraft, although uh, you don't need fuel to stay up in space, when you're in orbit around a planet, you stay in that orbit uh, in, unless you start getting dragged from the atmosphere or whatever. But Cassini has wanted to do lots and lots of different orbits, and it's had to use its fuel to do that over the years. So that's the main constraint, I gather. Yes, exactly. So eventually, over time, Cassini will begin to deplete its fuel source. Um, and uh, eventually, astronomers won't be able to kind of control where Cassini's going. Um, so essentially, the decision was made to then um, crash the the spacecraft into Saturn, so into Saturn's atmosphere, um, because uh, it, there is a bit of a danger um, that Cassini could accidentally crash into one of Saturn's moons. So, for example, Enceladus or Titan, um, and those two moons do have the potential for life. Um, and so that's one of the things that, that came out of Cassini was studying these two moons in more detail. Um, so to prevent the spacecraft from from accidentally crashing into one of those moons, um, yes, the decision was made to to instead put it into Saturn's atmosphere, where there it's very unlikely that there's going to be life there. And it gets incinerated; it goes through anyway. We'll we'll come onto that uh, yes. shortly. <laughs> the, the danger of it crashing into the one of these moons is not because it's going to harm any potential life there, though. This is actually because of what it might take to the moon. So either situation uh, could be possible. Um, so it's possible that there is life on those moons that we haven't found yet. Um, and obviously we would want to prevent um, Cassini from crashing into to one of those moons in that case. But also there still could be microbes um, from the Earth uh, on Cassini. Um, and then so there's a possibility of, of contaminating those moons with, with something from the Earth as well. I guess if then in 50 years we go back to one of those moons and find some evidence of bacteria, we then won't know 
whether it actually came from Cassini or whether it came from the moon itself. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So Cassini had this uh, this tumble, this crash, this burn into the, the Saturn's atmosphere, uh, and it it's been a, a few months coming with these uh, grand finale orbits of getting ever closer to, to Saturn. Um, what kind of things have you been getting out of these this last phase of the Cassini mission? Has that helped any of your research at all? So, unfortunately, it's not helped my research because I was particularly interested in Enceladus. Um, and so the, the last flyby of Enceladus was actually last year. Um, but Cassini was getting closer and closer to um, other moons like Titan. Um, and also the, the things that really came out um, as Cassini got closer and closer to Saturn is it was able to study um, the rings in more detail. So, for example, there's actually a gap between Saturn's atmosphere and the closest edge of the rings, by which is about 1,200 miles wide. Um, and so Cassini was the first spacecraft that could actually fly through that gap and, and study the rings in more detail there. Um, and also as... Um, it got closer and closer to Saturn. It could study Saturn's atmosphere in more detail and also send back some really spectacular images. Um, so unfortunately, it doesn't it doesn't involve my research, but it has helped a lot of people out there studying Saturn. And the images we've got as it's got close to Saturn have been have been stunning. Yeah, they've been really spectacular. I really recommend um, going on NASA's website and and looking at those final images. So there's definitely close up images of the rings. Um, also, some final images of Titan and Enceladus um, as Cassini is getting closer and closer to Saturn's atmosphere. Um, there's also a really lovely picture of Daphne, um, which is one of, it's a very tiny moon um, that's in orbit around Saturn, and it's actually between um, some of Saturn's rings. And so you can see Daphne in between the, uh, the rings, and it actually creates these really fascinating waves in the rings just from the gravitational interaction um, between the rings and the moon. And some of these, I know there were some, some images of, uh, some of these moons look very bizarre. So we think of moons and planets as being round objects, spherical objects, uh, much as the Earth, as much as the moon is. Saturn itself, of course, without its rings, is, uh, is spherical. But some of these moons are so small that they're, they're not quite pancake-shaped, but they're like flattened ovals and they've got all sorts of knobbly bits on them. So they look very bizarre. Yes, yeah. yeah, that's true. So I think a lot of Saturn's moons um, are probably captured asteroids. Um, so they're just a bit wonky looking, but um, these asteroids would have gotten a little too close to Saturn and then been pulled in by its gravity. Um, Saturn does have about 63 moons last time I checked, which was a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Only, a, um, or 62, 63 moons... Only a little over 50 actually have names. Right. Um, most of them are pretty small as well. So a few um, miles kind of small. I mean, yes, written, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Now, as, as Cassini had its final dive into uh, Saturn's atmosphere, it, it burnt up in the end and got incinerated. Uh, yeah. But before it did, it was, it was still taking data as long as it possibly could before <laughs> the spacecraft tumbled. What kind of thing was it looking at as it, as it descended into the atmosphere? Um, so, so originally it was looking at, at the rings, like like we mentioned before. Um, but as it was entering the atmosphere, it was also um, looking at things like um, what the atmosphere was made out of um, and, and things like that. And then, and essentially what would have happened is um, as uh, the satellite entered Saturn's atmosphere, it would have received a lot of, uh, or it would have felt a lot of drag um, specifically um, from the atmosphere. And then Cassini would have ended up starting to tumble through the atmosphere. Um, and it, I mean, Cassini's about the size of a bus, um, so it's not very aerodynamic. Mm. Um, as it started to tumble, then it would would have began breaking up. So unfortunately, we couldn't really um, 
we we wouldn't have been able to understand a lot as it tumbled through the atmosphere, but we would have been able to to see things like um, what the atmosphere was made out of and things like that. Okay, so a little bit about the atmospheric composition that we'll, yes. I'm sure there are teams of people analysing those results uh, as we speak uh, yes, to, yeah. to see see what we get out of that. So Cassini's been there for 13 years. We mentioned in space for 20 years. Um, what what do you think your uh, if you want to sort of take home highlights from Cassini? Do you think for yourself? Uh, so for me, the discoveries about the moons, um, about, specifically about Enceladus and Titan, were the biggest highlights for me. Um, so I've been studying Enceladus uh, with telescopes actually here on the Earth, um, but that wasn't really possible until Cassini um, kind of made its discoveries about the moon. Um, so Enceladus is. Um, an icy moon, um, so it's covered by a thick layer of ice. And one of the things that Cassini was able to find was that as it flew past the moon, it found these um, plumes of uh, water vapor um, just being ejected from, from the surface of the moon. Um, so we was actually able to fly through these plumes and see what they were made out of. So it obviously found water and, and water vapor, um, but it also found some other molecules as well. Um, so what we call organic molecules, and these are molecules that specifically are carbon-based, um, so they have carbon um, uh, in their makeup. Um, but the reason why the, this discovery of the plumes was so exciting is because the origin of the plumes is very likely um, a, a subsurface ocean, so an ocean below the surface of the, the icy moon Enceladus. Um, and this subsurface ocean is expected to be made out of liquid water. Um, so obviously this is really exciting for the possibility of uh, life on, um, on a moon in the outer solar system. But not only was it exciting what Cassini found about Enceladus, but also Cassini was able to study Titan in more detail. So Titan is one of the largest uh, moons in our solar system. And it's covered with this thick orange haze, and so specifically its atmosphere is mainly made out of methane. Um, and so on, uh, as a part of the Cassini mission, um, it wasn't just the Cassini spacecraft itself, there was also a lander called Huygens. And um, so oftentimes you'll hear um, the mission called the Cassini-Huygens um, mission. And so specifically, the goal of Huygens was to actually be dropped onto the surface of Titan. And this was the first time a lander has ever landed um, on a moon in the outer solar system, which is pretty cool. Um, and so essentially what Huygens found was that as it was being dropped through the atmosphere, it took lots and lots of photos. Um, it showed that, there, um, that Titan is actually quite similar to Earth. Um, so for example, um, there's mountains on Titan, um, and there's even these kind of large lakes on the surface of Titan as well. Um, now, these lakes aren't like the lakes here on the Earth. Uh, they're primarily made out of hydrocarbons. Um, and so what I mean by that is a molecule that's mainly made out of carbon and hydrogen. Um, so things like propane, ethane, methane, butane. Mm. Um, so kind of different types of crude oil. Yeah, all very gloopy and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and so as uh, Huygens actually landed on the surface of Titan, um, it, it originally scientists thought that it, the surface was quite gloopy, actually. It was almost like it, it landed in mud with a, kind of a hard shell um, uh, on top of it. Um, and so many people have described it in the past as it, it landed in a substance like creme brulee, <laughs> if you can imagine. Yeah. 
Um, and so essentially when it landed, it was incredibly cold on the surface of Titan. It was about minus 180 degrees Celsius, so incredibly cold. Um, but yeah, Titan was able to, or um, rather Huygens was able to send back lots and lots of images of Titan and it was able to, to do lots of different measurements. Um, and I do recommend looking up some of the photos that uh, Huygens sent back of Titan. Um, so they are up on, online. Um, and, and yeah, it does look quite similar to the Earth. There's lots and lots of pebbles lying around and, and things like that. So, um, so yeah, that was incredibly exciting there. It is surprising how similar the ter- terrain on, on Titan is. Because it, turn- it turns out that when you get icy, rocky stuff and it gets blown around by wind and washed around by a liquid, it all ends up forming the same kind of shape yeah, materials. Exactly. Fluid dynamics are the same on Titan as it is on Earth, it yes. turns out. Yeah. Um, I know they've found pictures of uh, dunes on Titan and all sorts. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. So there are some desertous regions of Titan as well. Um, and the the pictures that Cassini have been a- has been able to send back um, yeah, you can see lots of, of dune-like features on the surface, um, and then you get um, kind of these lakes, and you can see the, the edges of the lakes as well. It looks very similar to shores here on the Earth, um, and yeah, so it, it does look very similar. With all the things we've done on landing on Titan, Cassini's taken amazing pictures of Titan, and Celadus, its other moons, the impressive ring system, Cassini's atmosphere and all the storms uh, going on in there, of course. Uh, we've been able to do that because Cassini's been there, uh, now Cassini is not there. What do we do? So that's a really good question. Um, so the the next missions um, that will be flying to Saturn and uh, the moons of Saturn um, kind of won't launch really until the 2020s and will likely not arrive until the 2030s. Um, so in the meantime, in order to keep studying Saturn and its moons, we're going to have to do um, kind of observations here from the Earth. Um, now, the really great thing is that you can use um, telescopes uh, that are here on the ground at Earth in order to, to keep studying Saturn and its moons. And so that's what I've been doing. Um, so I've been using a telescope um, in the Sierra Nevada uh, in Spain um, called IRAM 30 meter. And specifically, what I've been trying to do is better understand um, Enceladus and specifically what happens to the plume material after it's ejected from the moon. Um, because this material won't just float off into space, um, it will actually be swept up in orbit around Saturn by Saturn's gravity, um, and it will become one of its rings. And so this is called uh, the E-ring of Enceladus. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's really spectacular to think that Enceladus, which is only about a seventh of the size of our own moon, it's pretty tiny, all of that material, um, all of that water vapor and, and different things that gets thrown out into space ends up becoming a, a, a giant ring around Saturn. And, and it, it is the second outermost ring that is in orbit around Saturn. Um, so that's what I've been trying to do here on the ground. Um, and I do think that um, with our telescope power here on the ground now, we will be able to continue um, understanding uh, Saturn's moons and, and even other moons in the solar system, including Jupiter's moons and and things like that. I guess Cassini has given us the context. So now when we see bizarre things from here on Earth, uh, we can then understand them a bit, bit better, Yeah. Uh, given that we've had Cassini there. Yeah, around, exactly. Around so now Cassini has, has crashed and burned into Saturn's atmosphere. Uh, we've got these observations from the ground. Do you think we'll go back again? Yes, I do think we'll, we'll go back. Um, so there is uh, a mission that... Um, that may get funded, um, so we'll know more in 2019. 
but this mission is called the Enceladus Life Finder. Um, the acronym uh, conveniently spells out ELF, which is a great name for a mission. Um, and so the idea is that um, if that mission was funded, um, it would uh, launch in 2024 and then it would arrive at Enceladus a few years later. Um, and then it would study Enceladus in more detail and specifically it wants to um, look for life. So it is the Enceladus life finder. Mm. Um, and so it wants to look more at the plumes and um, what the subsurface oceans are made out of. So that's going to be in, uh, if it gets funded, uh, launching and getting to Saturn, maybe sort of 2030 or thereabouts, that kind of yeah, time exactly. scale. So it's a little way off. Um, but maybe uh, we'll have Elf uh, or, or maybe a future mission going to Saturn uh, a few years down the line. One can only hope that the results that come out of those are as fascinating as what we've had out of Cassini. The, the results and the images, the science that's come out of the spacecraft have been uh, truly astounding. They've been remarkable. Uh, they've been fascinating to, to watch along. Uh, along with, of course, the spacecraft doesn't do it on its own. There's an enormous team of scientists, engineers, technicians and so on who've been helping uh, drive the spacecraft, spacecraft uh, analyse the data, collect the data, figure out... Uh, keep the spacecraft running, um, uh, all, all based here on Earth, uh, of course, around the world. Uh, and it's certainly been fun to uh, follow along. Uh, I'm sure it has been uh, for you as well. So, uh, yeah. Emily drabek Mwanda, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this month. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>